0: Mana, 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 This is Social Disgusting. Welcome to Social Disgusting, a podcast where my guests and I discuss our lives miss the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves. I am Brandon, A.K. Brandon. Hope you're well. My guest is an actor, comedian, writer, and producer who's appeared in a wide swath of things, including, but not limited to, Happy Endings, The Mindy Project, The President Show, and Sonic the Hedgehog, along with being the current co-host of the great podcast, Ball Sometimes Lie, and the one-time host of The Late Late Show, which is one of my favorite pieces of TV. It's amazing. Please welcome Adam Pally. Welcome. Thank you.
1: It was such a nice intro. I really... Uh I really enjoy being referenced as a one time host of the Late Show because I think that that's actually quite literal. I hosted it one time.
0: Yeah. I didn't watch it live, but I watched it when it was on the internet because this was like January 2015. It's amazing. And I return to it at least once a year because I think it's just a, I think it's imminently watchable and so endearing and delightful. I love it.
1: That's very sweet. You. Thank you, Brandon.
0: Well, okay. Or I should want I to ask call more. you?
1: Is it Brandon or? Brandon. Yeah, Brandon.
0: No, it's Brandon. This is Brandon? Yes, sir.
1: B R. Okay, because in the intro is A K A Brandon. So just, I just want to make sure I get it right. Are you Brandon, or or should I call you Brandon?
0: I am Brandon with an A. Brandon. Fair Brandon. question. Yes. Okay. It's Brandon. funny to think about that. That's the intro I do where we talked about it briefly before. This is the one year to the day that I started doing it, and then how like things become part of just the intro, and you don't think about what those are anymore. I'm right. like, oh yeah, why would anybody think that that's a normal thing to say? What does that constitute exactly? So fair question. Right.
1: Okay, so it's branded, not branded.
0: It is brand brandon. Brandon, yes, but sir. what is
1: it? But what is it not?
0: It is not Brandon and every other name. Okay for that matter.
1: Got it. So it's Brandon, aka Brandon. Yes, sir. Got it.
0: Brandon. Okay, perfect.
1: Anyway, uh Brian, what I was saying was <laughs> Um brandon.
0: Yeah, no, no. I don't I I don't I don't remember <laughs> <laughs> you are quarantining at the moment in a more official capacity than I guess others have been for the most part in the last year, and this is the last day that you're doing it. How has that experience been
1: it's been um it's a it's been fourteen days of being inside,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: is you know like for real inside, like not even going down the hall of the apartment building to throw your trash out um Wow. But uh, a lot of actors have had to do this, so I I feel very lucky. Like I'm in a really, I have a really nice apartment here in Vancouver that the studio has, and and you know I have Wi-Fi and I have grocery delivery and cannabis delivery. Like it's not so bad. But um, there is a mental component that I didn't, I didn't think of about being in solitude, true solitude for 14
0: days. I think I also th- I would imagine too knowing knowing that it's 14 days right having that number in your head and being like oh you know if you have a bad day it's like oh I have 11 more days of this that's got to be tough I would imagine
1: yeah that was tough I mean honestly that now we're at the 14th day and they have it has all felt like just one long day oh I bet you know like because you know it, 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 that's what it's been <laughs> um, but. um Again, like it hasn't been bad. I think I did. I think I did it the honestly like the best and most efficient way I could have. I could have seen myself really having a like a a really tough time here. Mm -hmm. But I was able to like, first of all, I have kids at home in New York and the past year has been exhausting. So the first like three days, I primarily slept a lot. Yeah. And any any parent knows like that is a gift. But around day two and a half, day three, you start to get like a little bit like, okay, like I have, like you said, I have 11 more days of this. So then I started, I gave myself like a pretty intense schedule where I would like exercise with like an app on my phone twice a day in the morning, in the afternoon, and then kind of build everything around that. So then I would give myself like two hours at my computer, you know, whatever business things I had to do on Zoom or whatever, then work out again in the afternoon eat dinner, and watch whatever till I could, you know, stop having anxiety and go to bed, (laughs) you know, and it was like, wake up and do it again. And I feel like, you know, looking back on it, I I think I probably should have started that right away.
0: That's tough. You know, first of all, I think that's a really smart way to go about it, at least the way I would have to do it, because I'm not like stringently, I'm not a planner necessarily by nature, but I also need a purpose and I need something to work toward. So uh-huh. I need that some form of that structure at the same time, especially in all of this where like life has n- less, if not any, you know, structure than ever right now. Yeah, and that,
1: and I and I was like pretty good about leaving myself some room for for like you know like I wasn't like stringent, of course, about like when I smoked weed or anything, but like I was like <laughs> stringent on like when I ate. I kind of tried to keep the the times of eating as markers as well, like not to eat too late or not to eat too early, you know, because then you're hungry. Like, I was able to kind of, like, use the markers of a standard day and use it to my advantage, whereas I've had had years where I don't know what day it is and when I wake up. You know what I mean? Like, so this was kind of like, you know, I was able to to keep it together, barely.
0: That's the funny thing, though, is, like, to say, yeah, I was quarantined, but it was in a cushier position i suppose relative to others but that's still its own form of toughness too that's still not easy at all to do that and you can't underestimate what mental health is and what it has is to have good mental health i mean whatever that means but especially right now to where i know for me that if i don't get a certain amount of sleep and granted it doesn't have to be the most sleep but i just can't function because all of this is so much and you have so much to process and you you need recovery i think more than ever
1: yeah sleep is important i, I that's something else I, I have a hard time i'm not a great sleeper especially with kids but these last like four four or five days i've been sleeping a lot better but i've also i've like my alcohol consumption affects my sleep real a lot lately the older i get yeah. you know like if i have like more than two drinks it's gonna be a hard night's sleep you know like i'll sweat i'll toss i'll turn <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah whereas yeah. when i was a kid i would i could have like A billion drinks and lie down on my bed and wake up the next morning, you know. And here, like, I, you know, being alone, I was trying to limit my alcohol consumption because it also makes me depressed. So I was like, okay, if I have, like, two drinks, it was my average. So sometimes I'd go up to, like, five, you know, and sometimes (laughs) I'd have none. You know, it was like, if I could limit that and keep that going, I would be okay. Yeah. And I did. I never had like a meltdown day, which was good because there were several days where I was like, you know what? I could just be drunk all day.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What's stopping me?
1: Me. Yeah. The only thing that's saying don't be drunk is me. But the truth is like when you're drunk, the time goes faster. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of positives to being drunk, (laughs) but I was trying to limit it.
0: Yeah. I've definitely tried to, I don't know that I necessarily am this way by nature, but try to like be conscious of not being self-destructive and all this. Because sometimes in my brain, I'm like, this is all too much. Fuck it all. Because it's all so much to process, you know, and not being around your friends or being able to talk to, you know, being in the presence of them. It's not how humans function. It's so unnatural for this to be this way.
1: It's really hard. You know, you're right about that. And there's a certain element of like trust. That goes into social interactions and social relationships. You know what I mean? It's like when yeah. you make a new when you make a new friend, there's a level of trust. It's like you're you're letting them into your world, you're being you're going into their world, and you're trusting that when you return back to your world, you're not going to slander or make fun of, or you know what I mean? It's like they're Absolutely. a friend. Right. So that I feel like that, the lack of that has led to a large bit of paranoia for people at least That's for me, for, for me, where people yeah. aren't getting the one side of it so they're just left with the other side of like, what does this person think of me? Was that email too much? Was my tone of voice on the phone too hard? Oh, Was I? Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a lot yeah. more of that because you don't know when the next time you're going to see them is and you're probably not talking as much as you would. So I feel like people are internalizing social um, interactions and that is making, at least me, like, that is a stressor for me.
0: I never thought about that. That's a great call. That's really interesting. Now, I think that makes sense, too. And it's like, yeah, to your point of the less they say and speaking for myself, the less like reassurances I guess I have that we're OK, the more I'm left to my own mental devices. And, you know, if you have a bad day mentally, that can mean, oh, they're mad at me and I'm a piece of shit.
1: Right, which is not necessarily the truth. But when you when you have a normal degree of social interaction, those doubts usually are cast away by the fun time that you're able to have. And I think like that is a necessity for human beings. So now without that release, a lot of people are just so worried that, you know, we're just all I feel like we're all just so tense and on edge. You know, like I've noticed just like hearing stories from from family members and stuff, like people are arguing a lot more. People are like People are making scenes with each other a lot more, you know what I mean? Like yeah. people are you you read more about like just like like bizarre social stuff. Like all I think a lot of these like fights with people like taking off their mask and stuff and like screaming at people. It's I'm not gonna say that those people are like I'm not gonna take the responsibility away from those people, they're maniacs, but I think that there's so much tension. People are so like in their own heads, and paranoid, and creating narratives that don't exist and stuff. It's like without the social interaction of it all, there's no release, and so it's yeah, like, every, everyone's snake is eating its own tail.
0: You know, I think that makes complete sense, and I think a certain percentage of it too is, especially with like the the rage and the mass stuff. I think a I think a certain percentage of it too is that a people have lost the illusion of control, and it they cannot handle that, so they're acting out. In these more fucking absurd, ridiculous ways, but still acting out nonetheless. And I also think that people are, for the last year plus now have had to deal with things that they've been avoiding for so long. And if you don't have that mental infrastructure in place because you haven't necessarily dealt with that, then I can't imagine having that experience under any circumstances, let alone one in which we have this specter of death looming up over us more than ever. Is that what
1: you mean when you say things that we haven't confronted? Yes. Yes. So like for you, you're saying like this whole thing has put death in the forefront of your mind. And before this, you were slightly carefree.
0: I wasn't ever carefree, but it is something that you don't have the obligation of or you don't have the the ability to ignore it if you wanted to. I don't think at least I can. Excuse
1: me. I'm just getting up to to make some coffee, but keep talking. I'm on wireless headphones.
0: Okay, yeah, no, I just think that it's it's more difficult than ever to ignore it if you wanted to take that that route, I suppose. But for me, it's just there. Which is fair. I think it's the right thought to have, honestly, because I don't think it's a bad thing to think about a natural part of life.
1: Not at all. What I do think is that, like I said, you can't have too much without the other, right? Sure. Like, again, going back to like the the instinctual cave men and women, (laughs) um, you know, that they were consumed with death, right? Yeah. Because that's all they were faced with every day was like either – I'm going to get eaten by a creature or I'm going to, you know what I mean? I've, you know, half of my babies don't live, you know, whatever Survival it is, instincts. Like survival all instincts. All the time. All the Every time.
0: Every day, right? all
1: day. Right. So that leads to barbaric behavior. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like that's, that leads to uncivilized society. Hold on. I'm, now I'm going to pick up my coffee. Okay. I have an espresso. Ooh, fancy. Well, you know what? I've got to. And there was an old school coffee machine and it broke right away. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to order an espresso because I know the coffee situation on set's going to be wonky. So I'm going to carry this espresso with me in a briefcase like a fucking Bond villain. (laughs) Anyway, so, um, yeah, I, I think so. So I think without the other side of life, you can't really begin to have a civilization because the human mind is able to turn we are able to become instinctual and sociopathic you know all of us once survival is there it's like we're able it's like you know kill or be killed so you know civilized society is based on a a trust and a peace with everybody it's like we're all going to be okay we're all going to live right and then then there's like bad people that don't want that so without that we really the human the human instincts can be insane you become like a legit animal and i think that a lot of i think that we're going to see a lot of that the longer this goes and i think it's going to go for a long time i do too like i i think the everyone's like oh the
0: 20s are going to be nuts it's like yeah maybe the late 20s <laughs> i think this is just life now until some form of this is life now and i think in a more immediate kind of obvious way this is life now for quite a while
1: yeah I mean, especially with, like, the variants and, and what's going on in Brazil. And, and I think we're going to be getting vaccinated, like,
0: possibly once a week. <laughs> it's going to – oh, man. It's going to be – Once a I think month. I read – it's going to be a lot of it. And I think admittedly as is, is, uh, deeply unfun as – I thought this is – I think somebody tweeted out, like, last week or something, maybe this week, about how there was some kind of, like, leaked document from a Pfizer exec saying we're going to ramp up how much this costs and you're going to need a third vaccine on top of the the booster every year probably which is like of course of course it is
1: that makes sense i mean i you know they're going to privatize some side side of it i mean even even other vaccines are privatized that's why there's that's why there's people still getting measles because you have the option yeah true but at the same time at the same time look i've been in canada for 2 weeks dealing with their health system and the, and their government and like americans <laughs> it's different up here You know, like, there are restrictions in Canada that Americans would not sit through.
0: Uh, They wouldn't be able to handle. No. Uh, The average American would lose their goddamn minds if they had to face any of that stuff. Oh, my God. From Anywhere from the health system down to the wine
1: distribution, the alcohol distribution of Canada, and the marijuana distribution of Canada. It's like, that's not a free market. You can't get certain wines in certain regions of Canada. You know, like it looks like. Can you imagine telling an like an American who's like saved up a bunch of money is going to Napa to like wine taste like a, from Florida? Like picture like a Rush Limbaugh style dickhead, right? Yeah, and yeah. his and and his fat wife, and they have like saved up all their money and they're gonna go to Napa, you know, to eat a French Laundry or whatever in there. They read Rob Report. They're like slightly sophisticated. And then they get there and the person goes, oh, we actually don't have that wine because the American government doesn't let us grow those grapes here. Oh, God. The guy would go fucking nuts, right? We would be
0: seeing a video on the Internet of a complete and quite possibly violent meltdown.
1: Yes. Or like you can't get that beer here.
0: Well, I why? Know, yeah.
1: Or you can't bring it here even. And if you bring it here, it's illegal to pour it into a cup. You know, it's like there are all these crazy rules. But Americans would just be fucking nuts all the time. And I don't think we're ready for that. So nor do I maybe agree with it. I don't know. I don't know what I agree with anymore. But I do know that it's, it's nuts. And, and I think that Americans would be, would be losing their minds if there was even – I mean, we can't even deal with a mask mandate.
0: No, I mean the funny thing is that when I think about when I think about America or Americans, I say this of course as being one, but the word that comes to mind first every time is undisciplined. That's what I think about, which is like some form of I guess saying just like immature, arrogant. There are so many things that come with that, but I mean something like any kind of mass mandate or something. People can't stand to be told what to do.
1: Yeah, I think the I think a word that I would use is entitled. Ooh, that's you know, better. The average yeah. American, the average American is entitled.
0: That's a better word. Yeah.
1: It's like they've grown up seeing first of all it's there's so much to it, right? Like our generation, our parents were supposed to be like the coolest people. They were like, you know, the most evolved theoretically. They saw what their their parents had gone through and their grandparents had gone through and vowed, you know, it's like we're supposed to be better, but we're worse. Right? So we're the first generation that's worse than their parents. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. sucks. You know, like, so that is a, a real problem. And the reason that we're worse is because of them. I'm just speaking in America. They yeah. they stopped funding education. They became, or they not became, they are racist at their heart. still. We are learning. And their children are racist. And that has crippled the country from the inside out. And, you know, I think entitlement has brought us there. Because you can, like, even in school, there's like this sense of like, here's our curriculum reading, right? Yeah. And a kid's like, I don't want to read that. <laughs> and, you, and you know what? Even further, you can't tell me to read. I'm an American. I don't have who to read Who are you
0: that. to tell me what to read, who to read? Thinking about, by right? the way, I never thought about it in this context, but the idea of like the, the propagandizing of like America number one, greatest country in the world, can't beat America, American dream, all these things, that the more that gets beaten into people's heads... And the more people think we're the best, the less anyone, a country or the people of it, the less they have to look in the mirror and do work because it's like, we're the best. What do we have to do? And that's how shit metastasizes and becomes god awful. I mean, I'm not saying the country is awful, but it, there are so many problems, it's impossible to see the good sometimes, if not most times.
1: Yeah. And I think that I think that it's also, you know, unfortunately, in America and in all politics, in all power. There's a like, even if you look at the two parties, there's like conservative and there's progressive, right? And even those two words are at odds with each other because there's a negative connotation to someone who's trying to conserve because it's impossible to conserve. Things are not conserved ever, they change, everything changes, it evolves. Buildings crumble. You know what I mean? Like, it is so short-sighted and uneducated to be a conservative of any kind. Now, I'm not saying throw out values. You can't throw out values because that's, again, that's what civilizes a society. But to want to keep things the way they are is such an inherently fearful and scared point of view. That you become entitled because you're refusing to learn, right? Like a progressive, the term progressive means that you're going to progress. You're going to move forward because time moves forward, you know? And it's like that is so insane to me that there's an entire force in the world that just wants to keep things the way they are. How could you do that? You're not going to live for You're Like, we're, we're all sitting here decaying.
0: You can't keep things the way they are. Nothing stays the same. Just thinking that the ethos of a party could basically be summarized as
1: no. Right. Keep things the way they are. Yes. Which is, like, so insane to me. Like, I do believe that you need a series of checks and balances, and you do need people with different values in the political power spectrum because you can't just be one thing right because then if you're too progressive you're moving too fast you know there is such a sense of like you're moving too fast you're going to miss something you're going to miss a group of people to include you know it's like you don't want to go there you can't do that so there needs to be checks and balances however the idea of like the other side like i get the side being like slow down i don't get the side being like conserve
0: you know like keep
1: That makes no sense to me, that side
0: of it. I mean, that's the thing, though. It's it's not even uh, – maybe a more accurate word for that as opposed to conserve would be preserve because that's yes, what they're doing. A, a preservation party? Yes.
1: <laughs> sounds worse, though.
0: And Oh, it sounds awful. <laughs> it sounds awful, but that's ultimately, I guess, you know, we're so indoctrinated to those with these two. They, that's what this binary is. But, I mean, that's what they're ultimately trying to do, right, is – both conserve and preserve. Basically, the only thing they know, you know, what they grew up with, and like, we don't want to change. And there's
1: the problem, though, at at that is the is is that the, the one side is has lost a lot of credibility. Because like, you know, not to like inflame the South, but, you know, the Civil War and the and the the Confederate flag that stands for pro slavery, right? Like, yes that's what that stands for if you if yeah. you put the confederate flag out what you're saying is like i believe in slavery <laughs> you know at the very least i believe in a different value system and like that is you lose credibility when that's the side you're trying to conserve it's it it's doesn't just, it's,
0: it doesn't make the point they're intending at the very least
1: it's just impossible to get over it's, it's yeah. because that's not the conservation you know i think look all of the american forefathers are horrible but i think their intent at conservation was meant to go was meant to stop the other side as well so that someone doesn't come in and you become fascist or or communist on the other side
0: yeah yeah
1: you know and i think that that that's why it's so dangerous that way
0: so i, I it's you know anyway i did want to ask you something a couple questions about the nicks <laughs> <laughs> go ahead I didn't know how to transition, so I'm just going to go ahead and transition. I like, it. But I like it. One, just in general, the Knicks are 21 and 21. They're in sixth place in the East. How do you feel about this team? I like
1: it. It's exactly what I I listened to Thibodeau the other day at his press conference, and someone said the exact same thing to him, and he and his answer was really good. And it was like this year's goal, like he's like we we set goals, right? And he's like this year's goal was to change the culture and change the expectation day in day out. And he's like and we're we're ahead of schedule there. You know like now if you play for the Knicks, you know what that means. You're going to lead the league in defense. You're going to beat the shit out of people again. And you can't be on the floor if you're not a bad dude. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because Tibbs that's the, and you got to come to practice every you got to be a gym rat or you're not going to play. You know like that's what's been established, right? So on that level, I love it. I think roster wise, it's a bit of a mishmash. Tibbs is doing. I mean, if he's not coach of the year, I don't know what coach of the year is anymore. I, for real, like I know Monty Williams is doing great over there, but he has three All Stars. You know, Tibbs has one who no one expected to be an All Star. So I think and Randall has played amazing. Like, amazing. That line yeah. is wild. Amazing. I, I if you would have told me three years ago Julius Randall would have been one of my favorite players to watch, I would have been like, you're crazy. Yeah. But he is, and and because he's he reminds me Julius Randall. Is a quicker, more complete at this point in his career, Larry Johnson. That's who he is. How and it's, it's such a refreshing leader. On that level, RJ is coming right along behind him and, and is be getting a rep in the league. I mean, Jimmy Butler said so the other night, he's one of his favorite young players. It's like if if RJ year two, and RJ's not even 21, he's 20, is this? He could be Jimmy Butler. He could be that for like 15 years in a Tib system. Because Jimmy Butler Became yeah. Jimmy Butler from Tibbs. So it's like, I feel great about that. I love quickly. I really like OB too. I think when he gets some run, he's gonna be really good. Um on the fence on Mitch, I think uh, you know, I let's I I want to see him play. I think we need a we we need a point guard <laughs> and we need a another star that is not gonna come in and change what Tibbs does. Yeah. And I think the good thing is that there are those players on the market. I don't know if Leon is going to mess up this
0: year to get them. Is that too much of an answer for you? No, no, no. I I think to your point, though, about I just wouldn't imagine they're going to do any kind of major move because I think that, like Thibodeau said, they're ahead of schedule. So the degree by which they've had success is a complete win based on their expectations and what they hoped. They've established the culture. And players are very much buying in. I think they're looking toward, they're looking at this year, obviously, but I think they're also looking toward down the line. And they have a really, they have a really talented young core of players, I think.
1: Yeah. Like, all right. That being said, right. Victor Oladipo, right. Is one name that I really like because he's 27. He's only one year older than Randall. Yeah. And everyone's like, well, you the Rockets want so much. The Rockets want so much. The Rockets want so much. Yeah. But what, Watch his value closer to the deadline, right? Like, if you can get Oladipo for, like, a second-round pick and Kevin Knox. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that, you know? Yeah. Like, if you could get Oladipo for a second-round pick and Nerlens Noel and Kevin Knox, why wouldn't you do that? You know, like, he's on an expiring deal. If it doesn't work out, you get set back. But if it does work out, you get, like, a former Defensive Player of the Year candidate. You get a dog, like a real vetted NBA all-star, who, like, you know, is a kind of a perfect compliment to Julius Randle. So, like,
0: for him, I'm in
1: on that price. I don't want to give up either of my first-round picks this year.
0: I think to your point, it's like, if you get somebody who can be a value add to your team without having to leverage your future, that's a whole other thing as opposed to, you know, like going all-in on a player for this year. That's a vast difference. Well, like Bradley Beal. I mean... Look at his like, stats. Good lord.
1: Yeah, but but like to that level, like you know, what would you trade for a Bradley Beal? Would you trade your first two your your pick this year and Dallas's?
0: You would have to give up so much to get Bradley Beal, and you I get need, why you, you would. Win. You would
1: need two lot those two lottery picks. You would probably need Mitch, and you would probably
0: need Frank in that deal. I would do that deal. <laughs> I mean. Well, when he said Frank Natale, I mean, yeah, I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. Seemingly,
1: well, you're giving up two lottery picks. You probably have to give up OB too, and I would still do that deal because Bradley Beal again, he's 26, he's averaging 35 points per game. Him and Randall, that's it's like almost too perfect the way Randall passes the ball. It's like I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know why. Why not? What's the? I think that that at this point you set up like like. I don't know how windows open and close. For me, I'm like, let's do it. Let's do it. Like th- th- for, for a guy like that.
0: Well, I think it's to your point about like something could be said for knowing what you have in a player who is proven as opposed to it is statistically seemingly very easy to whiff on draft picks. Like an absolute oh, yeah. crapshoot. Look at the Knicks roster.
1: They've whiffed. If, if you, you could argue that they've whiffed on the last like four since Porzingis, they've whiffed.
0: Yeah, I was looking at the roster and I didn't realize how many Kentucky players were on that team. Four, <laughs> four players? More. Even I'm more. seeing. F- there's four that I'm seeing. I'm seeing Knox. Julius, Knox. Julius Brandon. Derek Rose. Derek Rose is Memphis. That's oh, what he Calip- was Memphis. he's. Sorry. He's Calipari, though, so same difference. Okay, so. Had. Right. Quickly and then Noel. Okay. Oh, I thought it was more. Um, This is what ESPN has. They're like. Two Duke, two North Carolina, four Kentucky. All unsurprising just based on how many people they get in the draft. But it's funny, though. Like, when I was looking at this roster before and looking at the Kentucky guys, all I thought was, like, dear God, Calipari gets the least out of the best players, it feels like.
1: Yeah. You know, I'll tell you why Tibbs loves Calipari. Okay. And why Wesley loves Calipari. I don't think it's that Tibbs gets the least out of his players. I was talking about Calipari. I mean, that's what I mean. I don't think that it's that Kalapari gets the least out of his players. Okay. I think Kalapari runs an NBA system and an NBA program. And when you look at how many of his players have stuck around the league, similar mm-hmm. to Duke or Shashevsky and what's going on there, that I think it's more about work ethic than it is about result. And so he runs that system like a pro system. They have to watch film, you know what I mean? They have the res- all the resources that an NBA team could ever want and then he runs it like an NBA team. And they deal with fans and they deal with all this and they deal with discipline and they deal with getting in shape. You know what I mean? And Kalapari knows that he is a system to the NBA if he gets the best players. So he needs to treat the best players So that he gets the best result at the next level. You know, it's like it's kind of like a handshake deal. That's interesting. And so I think that that's why they love those big programs and those big coaches. Tom Izzo, you know, like they're great coaches. But I think it's also their system is not really about getting the most like well-rounded kid graduated. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. It's about getting an adult basketball player.
0: I never thought about it like that, and that does make sense. And I guess part of my basis for obviously getting the least is deeply unfair on my part, but getting not as much out of them, I guess my basis was that it feels like so many Kentucky players, at least relative to other bigger schools, are like people that are like gems in the draft that they get later, and you go back and think like three years later looking at like redrafts and lists like that, and they're like, oh, this Kentucky player should have gone higher.
1: But well, look who he was playing behind. They're yeah. all playing behind all stars, like quickly quickly, in a lot of ways was playing behind Maxi at Kentucky, you know, quickly's a point guard he's a six three point guard and with a shooting guard mentality. he's Gilbert Arenas to me that's who he's gonna be like, and they've like almost the exact same games. He has to play shooting guard because they have Maxi, who is a more talented ball handler and distributor, so it's like. You have to look at it that way as well. Like, yeah, if Shea Gilgris Alexander as a freshman was on Wichita State, yeah, he averaged 45 points a game and, you know, they would have upset a team in the tourney. But he's playing on the same team as friggin is like Anthony Davis or whatever, you know, like. Yeah, fair enough. Those systems are so stacked with talent. And again, like, yeah, it's about winning NCAA championships. And to win NCAA championships and NBA championships, you need the best players. So in order to get the best players, you got to run your program like an NBA program. And that is why the head coaches in the NBA tend to draft those players because they know and why those players tend to stick around the league longer is because they know what they're getting into.
0: Yeah, because they get prepped for that earlier. Earlier and earlier. Yeah.
1: Right? Like, I feel like this is how the NBA does their mental evaluations, but like, when – for a head coach, it's way more valuable. Like, let's say you have two players, right? You have a player like Quickly who was the starting shooting guard at Kentucky but was not the star because there were two other better players on the team. Yeah. But was the starting shooting guard at Kentucky under John Calipari. Or you have a lesser-known player like a – I'm trying to think of like – all right, like a Dante Exum. Right, who's a foreign a foreign player who was the star of his junior league team and averaged like a triple double or whatever in Australia? A team like the Knicks and Thibodeau goes, Okay, they're both available at the same number in the draft. I'm gonna take the kid that when he makes a mistake, I can adjust because I know he's been adjusted in a similar style. Then the kid who averaged a triple double in Europe, and as soon as I tell him, Hey, you gotta be down on the block. He goes, you don't tell me to be down the block. You know, I averaged 36 in college. College coaches don't want that. And, I, I, and pro coaches don't want it. They want the guy who's going to come in and fit the system that they're trying to do. And, and, and Thibodeau has a real
0: system. I suppose, yeah, part of the draft process is answering as many uncertainties as possible. And that, at least comparatively, is one way to ensure that, oh, well, we know what kind of player a Kentucky player will be, at least from a preparation and professionalism standpoint.
1: I think that's way more valued.
0: No, I think that makes complete sense. Who is the most beloved current Nick?
1: Tough. Quickly. Okay. Quickly is the most beloved. Sure. Beloved Julius. People fall in love with a new thing, and quickly from the moment he got here, and his story, and his floater, and his game is so tough, and his defense he, he's a just a great defender, and the leader of the when he's on there. If you heard Thibodeau say he talks the most, I think he's going to be a Nick for a long time. I think that he's got the city like
0: ready to go. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. This is something I was always curious about. I know that like in LA, the Lakers-Clippers relationship is like, oh, well, this is a Lakers town. It doesn't matter how good the Clippers are. It doesn't matter. This is a Lakers oh. town through and through. In New York with Nets versus Knicks, is that just always going to be no. a Knicks town? Or is it, is it possible like it could be taken over by the
1: Nets? Oh, it, I think it's already happened. Okay. I mean, look at that team. That team's going to win the championship this year. There's going to be a, a parade down Atlantic this year that is going to be so enormous and so huge for Brooklyn. It's awesome. I'm so psyched on the Nets. I think it's great. I don't root for them. They're not my team. Sure. But I don't have a rivalry with them except for Spencer Dinwiddie. I just, I hate Spencer Dinwiddie. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: But like, you know, I think it's awesome what's going on in Brooklyn. And I I think that similarly, like New York will always be a Nick town. Yeah. Because I don't see the Knicks ever leaving Madison Square Garden. But Brooklyn is a bigger borough. It's the biggest borough. You know, there's more people in Brooklyn than there are in New York. And a lot of those people are, you know, young and can't afford Nick tickets, maybe don't like ownership. And if you're just getting in, if you're a kid now and your team is winning championships, you're going to be a Brooklyn fan for life.
0: That is true. Yeah, I guess in a weird way, too, maybe, like, the, the Nets are a little cooler right now. They've got the big new arena. To your point, they've got a big population to play, to.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, like, you know, it's also hard. Like, I'm in a vacuum, too. Like, you know, the Knicks have a fan base, like, just, like, a, a real fan base. You know, so I I don't know. Like, I don't know if that'll ever go away. Like, they're still the most valuable NBA franchise because of the yeah. Garden. So I don't know if that'll go away. And especially with Tibbs now, like, Tibbs, I think Tibbs is going to be here for a long time. And I think that that this is the Knicks for a while now, which is good, which is good.
0: It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. I always really liked him. And, uh, you know, he's always seemed like just a guy who's just like one of those coaches of like, yeah, I have basketball and that's that's what I do.
1: Yeah, he's got a he's like a Bill Parcells lifer.
0: Yeah, this is completely backtracking to something that I previously mentioned, but you hosted for the one episode of the late, late show. And again, this is something I I go to, I think at least once a year, but how did that come about? Exactly.
1: They were, they were looking for hosts. I'm sure someone dropped out or someone couldn't do it. And the producer of the late, late show is one of the most uh, like, you know, important figures in my career. This guy, Nick Bernstein, who um, Mm -hmm. was in charge of NBC late night with the great Rick Ludwin. And he was in charge of hiring people for Saturday night live. And, um, he saw my like some of my stuff when i was like 23 24 mm-hmm. and was kind of like grooming me to do something at the network who was really helping me out i don't know you know i don't think it was SNL was not for me because they had a bunch of people that fit my type at the time but um the network was so supportive of me and my my collaborators that he kept bringing me on for work and i be- started to become like you know known at the studio and whatnot and then a couple years later i started working on happy endings and so I always – he was so important in my career and he is the executive producer of The Late Late Show still to this day, Nick Bernstein. And so they had an opening and he called me and said, this is going to be weird and I know I'm going to get fired for it. But would you want to host the last one? Yeah. And I was like, yep, I absolutely do. And he's like, great. You have no budget. You have to get yourself to New York. We can't help you with anything. We can't hire writers. We can't hire editors. But your musical guest is Death Cab for Cutie. So have a good day. (laughs) I was like, all right. (laughs) That's what I had, and then that's what happened.
0: That's amazing. And then on top of that, you had to compete with a blizzard. Yes, there was a horrible blizzard. Um, I
1: lost all my guests. But it was all – but, like, I could tell early on that that's the way it was going, and and
0: it worked. I think it worked great. And Martellus Bennett was a real delight. <laughs> he was great. He's the best. He's the best.
1: And that's, again, that's all Nick Bernstein. He knew who to book even as guests were dropping out because they couldn't get to the studio and and, you know – it was very COVID-friendly that show as well. Looking back, but you know that's all Nick Bernstein. Uh,
0: well, whatever. from a casting standpoint, he did a hell of a job between Beth Stern, Eric Andre, Martellus Bennett.
1: Yeah, Eric did me a solid. That's my boy. He uh, he came through, and he was on his way to the airport, and he came through for me. <laughs> and I, I, I am indebted to him to this day. And uh, Beth was just it was just really nice of her to do that. And Martellus, same thing. It was Super Bowl weekend, so like a lot of the the, um, and we were on CBS, which I think had the game. So a lot of the, uh, the celebrities were, were in the same place. So it made uh, it a little, it made it a little easier.
0: It turned out it's so great. And, you know, Ben Schwartz being your, your co host across the room in a very, like you said, very COVID centric setup. It worked very, out pretty yeah, well. It <laughs> very, well. kind of like, prophetic. we really, yes. I, I, you know, I just hope no one blames COVID on that episode of television.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they would,
0: but I don't know. You never know. But even the, uh, I mean, just the ending point of catching, and I, I know it was mentioned by Ben Schwartz that it was one take. Catching of the pencil or the pen. That was a That hel- that was like, that was like a perfect ending. And I ended the dismount.
1: And you want to know something? I did it twice. Oh, I did it twice. No. Because the first time we did it, they were like, holy shit, we caught it. And they're like, do we get it on every angle? Did we get it on every angle? Like, we missed it on this one, this wide shot. It's like, well, I'll do it again. Ben was like, no, you won't. I was like, I'll do it again right now. And then we did it, and I did it again.
0: Honestly, that's even more impressive than the first take to be able to yeah. duplicate that.
1: I know. I know. Well done. Thank you.
0: I don't want to give too, too much more of your time. I know we're already gone over what I had promised the amount would be. But what all, if anything, do you want to point people toward? I know you've got your podcast, Ball Sometimes Live, which is great. Um, oh, thank Anything you. else?
1: Um, n- no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate anybody who likes my stuff. And, and you know, um, hopefully next year will be better for everybody.
0: Agreed. Yes, that's a great way to end this. Great sentiment. Thank you again for doing this. This is great. Oh, thank you again for having me. Yeah, abs- of course. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Please take care. Please wear a mask or seven. Stay safe. Lead with empathy. Uh, be kind to yourself. Bye.